Is Congress finally working together? Let's find out. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer, and right here next to me is David Hansen. David, Sean White, no gold medal this year. What happened? And are, is, is, did you watch this, and are you watching any of the Winter Olympics? I'm not watching a lot of it. I did watch this last night because this is one of the interesting ones. And the luge came on afterwards, and I was like, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's a dude, in a, it's a, it was a woman in a sled just zipping around corners. I couldn't, couldn't have it. But Sean White. But it's basically like bo- it's bobsled with one person, it's right? It's just really boring. It's insanely boring. There's a whole movie about bobsled. Sean White, he, he, didn't, he didn't hit his go-to move. He did hit something down. else, though, right? Hit his butt. Yeah, did not look <laughs> very comfortable. Not cool. No metal. Not cool. All right, let's get to the headlines for today. First headline comes from the New York Times. House approves higher debt limit without condition. David, this is a clean bill. It's a clean bill. Nothing on it. No other legislation attached. They're going to raise the debt ceiling and push the, the debt ceiling debate all the way off to next year. Is this is it next year? Or, or is it the next year? Yeah, it's next year, right? 2015. Is it what? What are you taking away from this? Is I'm glad. Crazy? I'm really glad that we don't have to talk about it over the next couple months. I mean, that, I was dreading that, that we'd have to come in here every day and say, debt ceiling's one day closer. <laughs> but now we don't have to. So, I mean, yeah, uh, that's my main takeaway is I'm glad we don't have to focus do on Do you it. think that this is a sign that Congress is ready to work together? Or do you think this is just uh, the Republicans covering their butts during a midterm election year? Or maybe everybody. I shouldn't just single out the Republicans. Everybody covering their butts in a midterm election year, don't want to tick off voters with another costly debt ceiling debate. Yeah, probably. Is that what you think? <laughs> it sounds like that's what you think. That is, that is exactly what I think. I, I'll agree with I, you. I meant, to, I meant to tip my hand there. Yeah, you did a little bit. It is the midterm elections, mm-hmm. and this is just, it's driven people crazy. And, I mean, the, the fact that they do that to save their jobs, maybe they should be thinking about that in the non-election years as mm-hmm. well. That pe- People don't want this. Right. Work together. Work together. Can't we That's all we get do. along? Let's go to a, let's go to a more interesting let's, headline. Second headline. This one's from Bloomberg. Munger's Daily Journal lifts curtain of secrecy on bets. Now, Charlie Munger is the chairman yeah, curtain of, secrecy of a company headline. called Daily Journal Corp. And he is kind of their investment guy. And until yesterday, I think, we didn't know what he was investing their secret capital in. It was all secret. And it was Broken revealed dagger. in their 13... Ep- 13F file, they are holding U.S. Wait, Bank Corp. Oh, we got the drum roll. Drum roll, come on. Oh, sorry. All right, now. Tip my hand. Go ahead. U.S. Bank Corp, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and what was the last one? POSCO. POSCO. I don't know what that is. Korean, I, I, believe, I believe it's Korean. Uh, it's an aluminum, aluminum manufacturer. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. So maybe not too but surprising. But it's small, small position. Relatively small position in POSCO. Relatively, and, and that's a, that's a uh, company that Berkshire Hathaway also owns stock in. Actually, all of these are companies that Berkshire yep. owns stock in. Well, Bank of America kind of. Uh, of yeah. Warrants, so. yeah. Um, but uh, relatively small positions in POSCO and USB. Wells Fargo, very big position. Not surprising there with uh, Munger's position at Berkshire. Obviously, big fan there. And there's an interesting quote from... Uh, I guess it was an attorney from, from Daily Journal saying, a couple, it was from last year, saying, people are going to think this is crazy, but we are moving our allocation into stocks, even though most people think you should be putting it into risk-free government bonds that basically pay almost nothing in interest rates. So mm-hmm. at the time, they were saying, I know this sounds crazy, but we're putting our capital where we think is the opportunity. 
and it was Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and U.S. Bancorp. So, interesting scenario here. I'm not going to argue with it. I mean, we sit here day in and day out talking about the opportunity that, that are there in, uh, in, the, in the banking industry mm-hmm. and in the bigger banks in particular. And Daily Journal, what's, what's interesting is they don't have the kind of capital that Berkshire Hathaway does. Right. So, granted, Munger's going to be uh, more familiar with these companies because they're looking at them for, for Berkshire. But with a smaller capital base to deal with, Daily Journal could have just as Munger at Daily Journal could have just as easily gone into smaller companies, smaller banks. That's a really interesting point because we've heard Warren Buffett say, "If I had less capital to work with, I could dominate the market and double my money every couple of years." So it's interesting to see Munger with that small base still going to the large cap. So obviously, they think this is where the best opportunity is amongst all caps. And. Maybe the thought is, you know, somebody watching this out there is, is thinking, well, maybe Munger's just getting lazy. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe Munger knows these from Berkshire. They're easy to port over to, to Daily Journal and say, okay, let's just, let's just buy. It's not really Munger's style. Yeah. He's not really He's 90 a, and he's still working. I don't yeah, think he's lazy. He's not, he's not really a, eh, let's just mail it in mm-hmm. on this one kind of guy. So if he's buying these for Daily Journal... He really thinks that these are the best opportunities, and I don't, I don't think that that's crazy at all. I think that not only U.S. Bancorp and Wells Fargo, I don't think we're going to get any argument that these are excellent, well-run banks. Bank of America, going in that direction, hopefully going in that direction, but from a, from a price perspective as well. So you combine the operations with the price perspective, and I think that these are all really good opportunities. And so, yeah, I'm not going to second-guess Munger. For, for those of you who haven't heard of Daily Journal, it is a public company, so you could technically Only, invest yeah, yeah. In, in this portfolio. Um, it's around, I think it's a $200 million market cap, so it's pretty small. Um, and I guess they have the traditional newspaper business, and then they have some new kind of software-type business, um, and then they use the cash to invest in these equities. And just circling back around to what you were saying before about putting, it, putting capital towards equities versus putting it towards risk-free treasuries or something mm-hmm. like that, Going back to a book that we've talked about on this show before, The Outsiders, some of the best, the, the companies that have returned the best for shareholders over time are those that have done outstanding jobs with capital allocation. Berkshire Hathaway being one of them, but here you've got Daily Journal taking the capital, taking the cash that this business earns and figuring out the best place to put it. Mm-hmm. That I'm not necessarily going to say that this is the next Berkshire Hathaway here or, or anything like that, but this has been a recipe for success in the past. Yep. Third headline. Going to the Wall Street Journal, Square lands payment deal with Whole Foods. Stepping a little bit out, but, but right, on the, right on the periphery of what we do here. Uh, Whole Foods has a deal with Square now. Square, of course, the, 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 payment, the payments company, mm-hmm. I guess you can call it. The payments company founded by Jack Dorsey, mm-hmm. one of the original founders of uh, Twitter, went over and founded Square. And what they're going to do is they're going to have these Square payment stations all, of, all inside of Whole Foods now. So you can go in there, pay for something, get right out, which I think is brilliant because if you've ever been, and I know you've been to the Whole Foods over here in Alexandria uh, at, at lunchtime mm-hmm. when it's crazy and you've got lines, the, the checkout lines going all over the place and being able to go in there and, and check out really quickly uh, seems like a big win for Whole Foods. I, so I think that this is, I think this is a win for Whole Foods. Um, I think this is good for credit card companies, not just this deal with Whole Foods, right. but the idea that you can plug in a, pay, a credit card processing payment system more easily 
within stores make it quicker and easier for people to use credit cards. I mean, mm-hmm. with the Square deal, you're not going to be able to go up there and say, hey, here's, here's, a $20, here's $20 of cash. Yeah, you can't do that. Right. You're running a credit card. As far as Square, Square and then PayPal and Stripe were competitors there, I'm not exactly sure how I feel whether this is great news for them or whether this is a step towards an oncoming price war. I think it's probably both. And we talk about PayPal. They're kind of the leader in the space of the the tech aggregator payments. And they're a little bit slow moving into the in-store experience like Square was. Um, If there's ever going to be something that's going to really drive eBay to spin off PayPal, Mm -hmm. I think it would be Square going public and seeing the multiple that the market might give Square as a public company. Because if that goes public and trades at 100 times earnings or something, and you got PayPal sitting in here in this larger company, that could be some motivation to spin that off. So maybe that's what happens uh, with with PayPal there. But like you said, I think this is going to be a very competitive space because it's somewhat of a commodity. I know they offer some analytics in terms of when you swipe customer data and we see Amazon, we didn't mention them, Mm -hmm. they're thinking about getting into the space with their Kindle checkout system. So a good move for Whole Foods, good move for Square for now. It's just a question of how sustainable is that competitive advantage? I'm, I'm not sure. Price wars. Yeah. Price wars coming, potentially. But, I, yeah, but like you said, Square, not a competitive Visa or MasterCard. This is a good thing for them. Exactly, Makes yeah. their use more. All right, focus for today. We, last Friday, we aired an interview we did with Ron Suber, who's the head of global institutional sales for peer-to-peer lender Prosper. Mm-hmm. And so I thought we'd circle back today, talk about some of our reactions from that, and uh, whether we came away with the sense that, that this is a legitimate opportunity right now for retail investors to potentially be looking at a Prosper or looking at, sorry, who's the primary competitor? Lending Club. Lending Club and, and potentially investing in peer-to-peer loans. What, what were some of your biggest takeaways from the conversation? I was slightly more interested in the space. And I think as, as valuations continue to move up into the market, if, if you personally think that stocks aren't as good of a value as they were maybe a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the more that happens, the more this opportunity starts to look more attractive to me. Uh, if I can't find stocks that I think I can get a really good return, uh, say 15, 20% over the next several years, a 13% peer-to-peer loan with some default built in there, maybe yielding 10% a year, starts to look more attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I think I am still finding stocks that give me better returns and more upside than this because with a loan, you're kind of capped on your upside. You're going to get your 12%, but sure. it's not going to grow with a business like a stock would. So more interested um, if stocks continue to become more expensive. That's, that was kind of my main takeaway. So I, I agree with you largely. I, I guess from, from talking to, to Ron, the, it was nice to get some more color around the rating system mm-hmm. at Prosper. So you, you have a sense of who you're lending to. And, and finding out how Prosper does that uh, gave me more comfort that they really they have a pretty good idea of, of who this is that's borrowing and their propensity to pay back the loan. Uh, also, understanding the pricing system at Prosper was was good to know because uh, Prosper essentially started out with a quasi market system which yeah. didn't work out so well, and so they moved to this Prosper sets the pricing tiers uh, structure. Mm-hmm. So there's different pricing tiers for different uh, Prosper ratings. Uh, and, that, and that was good to understand as well. Uh, I think it was also important, I, I had a sense that this was true, but uh, Ron confirmed it, that you can, as an investor, you can 
partially fund a loan. So instead of, if somebody's looking to borrow $20,000, you don't have to go in there and say, okay, I'll give you the $20,000 loan, as you would with a family member, right. say. You can go in and say, well, I'm going to put $1,000 uh, towards this loan, $1,000, and you can diversify across yeah. loans. And Ron that recommended that. He said they exactly. want people to be in, in 100 loans, right. which is pretty incredible, because if you have 10 loans in there and one goes bad, yeah, you're exactly. not going to have a very good experience. Well, yeah, when, when you look at it, and, and Prosper has, the, has tables up on its, on its site showing what the, what the pricing structure is, what the defaults have been, so you can go through and kind of calculate what your uh, net return is going to be. But if you're investing in very few loans, it's not necessarily going to look like that because, like you said, you, you, get, a, you get a bad roll of the dice and you have one loan that you've invested in that, that goes uh, belly up and, and you're kind of uh, uh, out of luck there. Um, so, so I thought that that was good to understand as well. Um, it was also interesting to hear the extent to which institutions ha- have gotten into this. It was my, my con- a concern of mine, actually, and I expressed this to Ron on the call, that does this create competition for retail investors that they're not going to be able to get a piece of the market mm-hmm. if so many institutions are moving in? But to me, that does say that this is being proved out as a legitimate asset class. Mm-hmm. So that gets me back to what you were saying in terms of do you put some money towards this? Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's an interesting thing to start looking at. I, the way I would think about it is that if you're a stock in passive index fund investor, purely in index fund investor, and you just want a dollar cost average in there and put your money. This really, I don't think that this is the place for you yet. But if you're the kind of person that is willing to open up a 10K, uh, read through an annual report that's going to listen to conference calls, that's going to really understand a business and then invest in an individual stock and individual business, then this could be more interesting for you because I, there's, there's homework to do here. You yeah. can't just go in there and say, oh, I'm, I'm going to throw a few thousand dollars here and a few thousand dollars there and it's going to work out for me. I think you've got to do some homework. But assuming that you're willing to do that, I think that this is, uh, I might even say, to, to use some jargon here, that it may even be an uncorrelated yeah. asset class that can get you away from the ups and downs of the stock market. Right. Um, for anyone interested, we should say the fees on it, they're... There's a 1%, I believe it's 1% for Lending Club and Prosper, 1% annual fee kind of for servicing the loan that, that you have there. Uh, and if a loan goes into default, uh, they bring in a collection agency who goes out and tries to collect for your loan, and they charge additional fees for that. So just be aware that this isn't just a completely free ride here. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I was hoping that they'd just give me a phone number and an address if the, <laughs> if the loan goes up. bad. Just, I just get to call them up and, and bother them during dinner, but apparently it doesn't work that way. And yep. I, I guess for the, for the borrowers, that's probably, probably better. for the best. They don't want to hear from me during dinner time. But, but overall, I think I'm really glad that we were able to get a chance to speak with Ron. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at it myself and maybe uh, experiment a little bit, uh, see what it's all about, so then I can bring some of my experience uh, back to the WTMIers. All right, sounds good. Moving on to the mailbag. We've got an email address. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. We just, we love email more than anything else, basically. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, my, my dog, my wife, I guess. But, but email. Okay. Email. So send us an email. It makes us really happy. Our question for the day comes from Teresa in Indiana. And Teresa writes, I purchased a REIT ETF, ticker symbol RWR, last summer in search of some portfolio diversification. Now, having the benefit of several months of your podcast, it is clear to me that I should not have made this choice because I did not know enough about what I was buying. It also wasn't a recommendation from the Motley Fool Services I am enrolled in. 
she mentions Million Dollar Portfolio and Supernova. So I should have known better. As of today, I am down 1.2% in real terms, but have lagged the S&P's performance over that same period by 14%. This is in a rollover IRA account, and my husband and I have at least 20 years to retirement. I don't want to panic and dump something that might actually be a good investment. So what I would like to know is if I keep this fund, what am I betting will happen? Would it be positively affected if housing starts go up? Or is it more tied to mortgage interest rates or the overall ability of homeowners to make their mortgage loan payments on time? In other words, I need to have my investment vehicle explained to me. I know it is so sad to see this in writing. <laughs> David, you took a look at what the actual holdings are in this fund. What, what are we, what's Teresa really looking at here? So she's really looking at mostly commercial real estate. She mentions homeowners. That's not really what you're investing in in this REIT ETF. It's not people making mortgage payments. That's not what it is at all. So the biggest holdings in here, Simon Property, so Simon Malls, uh, they own the property. People pay them lease rent for that. Uh, Public storage, the storage company, you see the orange signs everywhere. You pay money to to, to to use their space. Uh, Ventus, uh, HCP, healthcare REIT. So these are basically healthcare communities, uh, retirement communities that people live in, pay rent to. So that's kind of what you're looking at here as opposed to the consumer housing market. Mm-hmm. So this has been a, this is really a broader economic uh, commercial real mm-hmm. estate bet, if we, can, if we can call it that, yeah. uh, rather than something on, on the residential market or retail, uh, retail housing. Yes. Um, it's also to some extent, and we've watched the, the action we could say, in, in REIT stocks over the past six to nine months, it's also a bet a little bit on the interest rate environment. Yeah. So this last six to nine months, and this is probably why Teresa has seen the performance uh, that she has, is that these are, uh, high, these are high dividend stocks, mm-hmm. typically. And so as interest rates have started to creep back up, these stocks have taken a hit. Um, and so... And explain that a little bit in terms of why. Why would a stock that has a good dividend fall if interest rates go up well there without are f- getting too wonky right right there, there are a few different reasons within the the REIT business in particular because p- part of it is that the financing that they use will get more costly mm-hmm. as interest rates go up it's going to cost more for them to finance the properties that they're buying at the same time investors always face a choice of where they're going to put their capital so and and those choices are affected by the risks that right. are that are inherent in each thing so if i'm only in a two two two-choice environment between equity REIT stocks and U.S. government bonds. Which are, quote, safer. Right, which are, people call them risk-free sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's not totally true, but it's, for, for lack of a better way to put it. So if I have the choice between both of those, if the yield goes up on the, um, on the, the, safer, thing. On the safer thing, not everybody's going to flood their way over there, but on the margin, you're going to have all of these different preferences that investors have. So on the margin, some people are going to start moving that way. That's going to drop the price on the, on the REITs. On the bright side, if you're buying in as that price is dropping, you get a better dividend, yield, yep. assuming that the yields don't have to get cut in the future. So that's been affecting it a little bit. All right. What about her first part of the question? If she doesn't understand it, should she sell at a loss? Should she keep holding on? What do you think about that? Well, first of all, I'm going to give Teresa a round of applause because recognizing that is difficult. That's such a long <laughs> It's It's difficult. 
Um, but it's also good. It, if you don't recognize th- those kind of things, if you're not willing to be honest with your investing in yourself, you're going to fall prey to every single behavioral problem uh, that investors can face. So Teresa's on the right track here. And I will say that I do this occasionally. I get really excited about something. I buy it before doing all of the homework that I should. And later on I say, oh, man, I don't understand this as well as I need to to be able to own this. Mm-hmm. Teresa's protected a little bit from the perspective that this is a fund. This isn't a single REIT company. This is an ETF that covers a lot of REITs. Is it actually an index? Uh, it's both. Well, there's, okay. there's an ETF and an index kind of with the same holdings. Okay, and ve- very low expense ratio, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So from the perspective of getting diversified in terms of getting part of her, I, I shouldn't say part of her portfolio because I want to make sure that it's clear we're not giving personal advice here. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of getting part of one's portfolio, diversified and into real estate type investments. It's legitimate to, to have some of that here. It's going to move a little bit differently from the rest of the stock market as, as we're seeing right now. Um, so right now, it's, it hasn't looked so great because the read index has, hasn't gone anywhere while the stock market has done well. In other periods, we may see the stock market index not do so well while the REITs start right. to recover. So from a diversification perspective, it's okay. Um, I would be more worried about it for myself if it was an individual company, an individual stock. Fair enough. All right, game for today. We haven't done this in a while. We've got some Rank It. Mm-hmm. We, I love Rank It. I don't know why we haven't done it. So what we've got is we've got five categories within the financial sector, and we're going to rank those one to five. David, why don't you get us started with your rankings? All right, my rankings are, so we're going industry. Oh, this is in terms of opportunity. Best investing Best opportunity. opportunity. All right, here are my rankings. I had number one... Banks, number two, REITs, number three, insurance, number four, asset management, number five, financial technology. And financial technology, we're lumping Visa, MasterCard, uh, we'll lump eBay in there, eBay's, sure. eBay's PayPal. So I have them number number five. Number one, still going with the banks. I think the long-term, five to ten years, the valuations today are still very attractive. I think we're still in the early innings of kind of the new credit cycle. Uh, I know that other one was so nasty, and everyone thinks we're going to be due for another terrible credit cycle just around the corner. I don't think that, and I think the valuations are more than justifying the kind of the risk you're taking today. So banks, number one. What do you got? I have to do my... Okay. Let's go ahead and see my rankings. I don't think we have yours. You didn't, you didn't do... I'm sorry. You can just read them. It's not going to look pretty. Yep. You did this on purpose. Yeah. Killing me. All right. My number one was insurance. Number two, banks. Number three, asset management. Number four, REITs. Number five, financial technology. So I shared the financial technology ranking with you at number five there. My number one was insurance. I, I debated between putting insurance first or, or banks first. Uh, I think there's more uh, undercover opportunity in insurance companies, and two that I'll point, that I'll uh, throw out as one on my radar, one that I own, uh, Ace uh, Insurance Company, run by Hank Greenberg's son. Hank Greenberg, of course, was the driving force behind building AIG. Uh, his son runs Ace. Uh, I think it's a very well-run operation. Uh, I'm looking closer into it. Like I said, it's on my radar. Platinum Underwriters, I've mentioned this on the show before. I think really good underwriting culture there and great capital allocators mm-hmm. putting money in the right place. We got a tweet about Platinum the other day asking us to detail the earnings, so we got to do that on a detail next show. Okay. Yeah. yeah um, in terms of financial technology being five for both of us, I think the reason, or the reason, I know the reason that I have it down there, is that I think I it's a very interesting, obviously it's been a great sector looking at Visa and MasterCard, but looking forward, I think there's a lot of potential 
new technology coming online here. And I don't know if you're getting justified that in the price today. The price always looks expensive here. I mean, they've been able to grow into that. But if there is something that happens that disrupts their model a little bit, mm-hmm. I, I think you'd be a loser in the long run. Um, so I know, I know that's kind of a out there bet or out there of opinion, but I don't think you're getting compensated for the financial or the technology risk here in these companies. All right, and I'll finish off by mentioning a little bit more color on asset management. That was my number three. Where was it for you? Number four. Number four. So when I look at asset management, one of the areas of that that I'm particularly excited about are the private equity companies, uh, Blackstone, KKR, Carlyle Group. These are now public. I think that these are very great brands, good businesses. And in some of them, you've actually got a collection of businesses. Uh, Blackstone, for instance, has the private equity. They also have the real estate private equity. They also have an investment bank. They have an advisory business in there, uh, strong businesses. I also might include the mortgage REITs in asset management instead of REITs because if you think about the way those businesses are run, uh, I think those might be so, again, the the Annaly Capital and and American Mm -hmm. Capital Agency managing portfolios of agency-backed securities, I think more falls under asset management for me. That's fair. And I guess the BDCs would as well, right? Yeah, definitely. That, That would go in there as well. All right, finishing off in the Twitter sphere, David, what is our first tweet? And we're running low on time, so we're going to do Super First fast. tweet is from long run, retur- long run Returns at Long Run Returns. This is our own Alex DeMortier. Professor, how do you say this name? We never know how to say it. Professor DeMotoran. DeMotoran? Yep. The valuation guru puts a figure on Twitter's intrinsic value. Hashtag negative margin of safety. He hashtags Twitter there. That value, $20.57. And what it's the stock at now? It's at a lot more. 50, 50 plus. I'm going to disagree that he has pinpointed the exact intrinsic value of Twitter. Um, I think that's a little ridiculous with this company that can change so much over the next five years. You look at Facebook, over 50% of their ad revenue is coming from mobile. No one would have guessed that 10 years ago when Facebook started. You say ad revenue, can't even get the internet on your phone. So I think that's a little ridiculous to try to put an intrinsic value on Twitter when it can change so much. Yeah, I I think Demodoran is... is he is a valuation guru, a very smart guy, but I think this is just, it's a tough one to run through a traditional valuation. Too many intangibles. All right, let's go to the second tweet. Second tweet of the day comes from The Verge. Now accepting Bitcoin has become a marketing gimmick. Uh, gimmick maybe, David. It's a, it's a marketing device now. Uh, you say, we accept Bitcoin, and that at least gets people interested in checking out your business, right? Yeah, I would definitely do it. I mean, if all of my sales were in Bitcoin, maybe that would make me a little bit less happy or feel less secure about my business. But if it's just a portion and it's a marketing thing, go for it. Sure. And there are also uh, a lot of venture capital companies now funding uh, companies that make it easier for businesses to handle and and accept Bitcoin. Exactly. All right. Take us out, David. Last one. Final tweet is from Scott Jurek. Is that right? That is correct. Cool to see, quote, born to run on Amazon's list of 100 books to read in a lifetime. Congrats at McDonald. Chris Chris McDougal. McDougal. McDougal, same thing. You had like never, you'd never heard of this book. You like this book. Tell us why. This, this is the book, first of all, Scott Jarek, who you'd never heard of, one of the greatest ultra runners of all time. Mm-hmm. Probably look him up. Won the Western States, I think it is nine, nine times. Of course. Um, who doesn't know that? The Western States, that's, that's like the Super Bowl of ultra running. Anyway, Born to Run was basically the book that got me really interested in doing ultra races. Uh, but besides that, it's a book about running, but it's just a really great story. Chris McDougall's a great writer. Now, there, there's, some, there's some stuff in there about 
uh, barefoot running and that sort of thing. It's interesting. Take it with a grain of salt. Chris McDougall's not a, not a scientist or a doctor. So it's interesting stuff worth thinking about. But overall, it's just a really great story. And what did I tell you? What did I tell you after you said you hadn't read it? That I have to read it. You have to read it. <laughs> you homework. literally have to read it. I thought I was done with homework. And I would encourage everybody, uh, all the WTMIers listening right now, email us, uh, WTMIFool.com, or tweet us at TMF Financials, and let David know just how important it is that he read this book, because I guarantee there are a bunch of WTMIers out there that have read this and loved it. I'm going to take the opposite side of that. I don't think anyone's read it. <laughs> of course you don't, and you're going to be wrong again. So they can prove me wrong. <laughs> All right, well, that's the show for today. Uh, I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.